0: Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. And
1: welcome. Our guest this week on KCBS In-Depth is Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine, a man probably best known for writing about politics, but his new book is about America's favorite sport, a contact sport other than politics, pro football. It's called Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. And it's just out just in time for the start of the NFL season. I'm Doug Sovereign, political reporter and ardent football fan here at KCBS Radio. And Mark is the author of four books, including the number one bestseller, This Town, about Life and Politics in Washington, D.C. He joins us in studio as our guest this week on In-Depth. Thanks for being with us, Mark.
0: Great being with you, Doug.
1: So let's talk a little bit about, first of all, as I said, you're a political reporter, magazine writer, yes, an award-winning one. Uh, football was probably not the thing people expected you to write a book about. What was the genesis of this project?
0: The genesis was pretty simple. I mean, two things. One, I needed a break from politics. And two, I just, I've always loved football, and it, it always struck me as a world of out-of-control money, ego non-self-awareness, a lot of the same neediness, a lot of the same things you would see in politics. So it seemed like a natural crossover. Uh, What I learned very, very early on in the process is that there was no uh, escaping politics whatsoever into football, whether it's league politics and owners trying to get the better of other owners and fighting with the league office and fighting with each other. And then Donald Trump politics, because as we all know, he has, uh, belly flopped into the pool of, um, of political protest that has, uh, you know, been a big part of the NFL story the last couple of years. So yeah, politics is everywhere so in a way I, I couldn't escape um, and I'm completely at home.
1: But you're also, you, you were trying to write a piece about Tom Brady for the magazine.
0: That was the genesis. Uh, Tom Brady I mean I guess I should disclose here for fear of losing half the readers, I, but I feel like you know, I should be, not uh, to mention a large portion of our audience. But yes. Please. No, I know. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in New England, so I, I do have that disease. But I'm trying to be a good example and, and not completely alienate everyone because I know how people feel about the paths outside of um, the six-state area that roots for and everyone's sick of them and all that. So, look, I, I'm one of the good ones. I know the fans are obnoxious and entitled, but I'm, I don't live there. Um, but I'm one of them. So I get get that. But having said that, yes, I wanted to do a story on Tom Brady. It was sort of a Hail Mary attempt. I didn't think he would ever agree to do an interview with a political reporter. I have no history with him, no history with sports writing. And as it turns out, he does like to sit down and and talk to people who are not in his usual world. And he was sort of curious, and I was obviously curious um, when I wasn't a total fanboy. And that became sort of, it became a magazine piece at the end of that season, which is when the Deflategate story broke, but also... They went to the Super Bowl. They won. That was the game they beat Seattle. And it just sort of became the first step of a journey into the league because I thought that there was just much more there, and I didn't want to leave. And i done a bunch of other stories, and um, all of a sudden I'm in this swamp now too.
1: So you're a Patriots fan. We won't hold that against you. You're not responsible for the team. Some might you know. <laughs> Even though your your team represents all that's wrong and that's evil sad. about the league, it's okay. So so you interviewed Tom Brady, and you got some pretty uh, unusual access, not just to him, but, but to the owner, Bob Kraft, uh, to other figures around the league.
0: Yeah, that was stunning to me. I, I did not expect that me as an outsider would have the level of success I, I had just sort of getting in with a lot of the owners. I probably talked to about maybe – probably more than half of the owners. I spent time with Roger Goodell, the commissioner – spend time with players like Brady and then journeyman players, um, you know, down, the, up and down various rosters. I mean, it was illuminating, one, because I hadn't fully appreciated how undertold story the story the, the NFL owners are. I mean, these are 32 really, really wealthy, I think largely unimpressive people <laughs> who, who control the destinies of a lot of, you know, sports passions in 30 markets across the country. And often just break their hearts by moving, or just disappoint people. And unlike politicians, they don't have to run for reelection. So they're this cartel, and they have inordinate power over so many things. So that was to me a revelation. But but really, it was so similar to Washington, so similar to another faltering and yet seemingly um, uh, invincible empire that might be teetering on on some kind of. You know demise but it was fascinating to be there to
1: see it yeah what about those parallels as you say on the one hand NFL owners are not especially accountable I mean they can say they are it <laughs> stops with me I'm you know but they're not they can't be removed unless they do something horrible uh, like Jerry yeah. Richardson in Carolina yes uh, unlike people in Washington who, who are ultimately accountable to the voters
0: yeah I mean somewhat theoretically but I mean some more than others but I mean depending on district and so forth but you're right I mean uh, Jed York the the chairman of the, the San Francisco 49ers had this I think, unforgettable line a couple of years ago it was after he had, I think, fired Chip Kelly, uh, the second like the second or third coach in like two years that, that he had fired. And he was asked in a pretty tough press conference, you know, is any of this your your fault? And he basically gave a long-winded answer that landed on, uh, you can't fire the owner. <laughs> and it was in, in the in an otherwise sort of doddering press conference, it was the one undeniably true statement he made, but it also was widely ridiculed. As as an example of arrogance and if, an example of how impossible it is to dislodge these people, and and frankly, I'm guessing Jed York probably wouldn't have been um, wouldn't have been uh, voted re- reelected if if his tenure were put to a vote of San Francisco 49ers fans two years ago. Maybe a little better now, but maybe not. Um, certainly, where I live, Washington D.C., Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, would probably struggle to get into double figures of percentage, but he doesn't have to go up for re-election so yeah it is unimpressive um, I was stunned by how how many you know people I got a chance to sort of see up close how unimpressive they were and the results you know a lot of them aren't very happy with but that's the book
1: yeah I was wondering about that but you know you say unimpressive I mean some of them are very significant figures in business they've made Absolutely. fortunes others are like Jed York they've you know, they're several generations removed from the original. Yes. Uh, but but um, some of them have had successful business careers and parlayed Absolutely. that into, you know, they wanted to get into this exclusive club.
0: Yes, many of them, I mean, look, a lot of them inherited the, the billions of dollars it took to to uh, to you know, buy their teams or put together groups. But, yeah, undeniably, there is, um, there, you know, Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons, is the founder of Home Depot, which, you know, a great American company. Uh, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, owns or sort of the absentee owner of the Seattle Seahawks. He, he rarely shows up in league meetings or anything, but yeah, I mean, he he obviously is a kind of Hall of Fame business person in American history. But largely, a lot of them kind of lucked into it. A lot of them have, have criminal records. I mean, there's they're just quite a bunch. And um, again, if you were putting together a all-star corporate board to run Apple or to help run Apple or Federal Express or Bank of America or something. I doubt you'd pick any of these folks. I mean, I really don't, and I also don't think you'd pick Roger Goodell to be CEO. So, I think the game survives despite a lot of the people who run and own it. And I think that's one of the takeaways from Big Game.
1: So, reading this book, you did get people to say some things that they probably wish they hadn't <laughs> said on the record. Yeah. Do, do they not realize because they're not used to this sort of thing who they're talking to, <laughs> or or what the rules of the game? It's not their it, game; it's our game. It, what the rules of the game are?
0: It, it's interesting, Doug. I mean, I, I didn't. I think a lot of them. Are used to a certain amount of deference in the world of their kingdoms that they run and sports writers sort of giving them the leeway that you know first of all re- many of them just rarely talk at all I mean a lot of them are just so um, in their little sort of cordoned-off boxes and the, the network cameras sort of show them in their bespoke suits just watching their gladiators perform and it's a bizarre custom but no I mean I, I had a lot of people I mean Robert Kraft the, the owner of the team I, I root for He's not happy with how he was portrayed because, I mean, maybe he got a little too comfortable and maybe he's used to either not talking to reporters or not used to being held accountable for exactly what he says. I mean, the expectation that they will be taken care of. They will be called Mr. So-and-so. And so, so, look, if they can be unpleasantly surprised by someone trying to put um, a more maybe edgy or critical or more truthful eye onto what they're doing, I'm all for it. I mean, I'm happy to be uncomfortable with these people.
1: So the NFL does feel, to some extent, like it's at a crossroads, and that's sort of one of the premises of the book, that uh, yeah. ratings are down, concussions are up, or at least there's a greater awareness of it. There's the whole Colin Kaepernick thing. Yeah. Uh, do you think, and this is maybe too early in the program to ask you to draw this kind of conclusion, but uh, are we seeing the beginning of the end of that empire or, or or no? There,
0: There is, look, there's a sense of real precariousness within that empire. I mean, certainly, I mean, the numbers aren't going down Rapidly, I mean, I think the TV ratings the last couple of years have clearly declined. I guess this year is going to be interesting to see how, whether that's a trend or a phase. Um, I mean, if you go by the first week of ratings, you know, Sunday's last Sunday's games, the first week of the season, they were up. So you could also go by the first Thursday night game that was down. So people are going to probably overreact to all these things. And of course, the president of the United States is going to help people overreact by um, doing this weird end zone ja- dance every time ratings go down and i mean he feels you know he has like a stake in people not watching football for whatever reason so that's going to exacerbate it but you no know, clearly if you look at youth participation levels which are way down if you just do anecdotally talking to fans and people are now kind of the the, the cognitive dif- dissonance that people watch football with the sort of passion they have for the sport the addiction they have for the game versus the the greater awareness they have for what, what this game is doing to the people who are playing it, and, and also just sort of the bad behavior of the owners, uh, of some of the players, it, it makes it harder. I think the league is very worried about hardcore fans like you or me, um, about you know how, how much else is disturbing the game and how hard it is sometimes just to forget everything else and, and watch football. So that's going to make a dent long-term. We will see. I'm not one of these doomsayers, but I'm also someone who is prepared to stop watching when I feel like it.
1: President Trump likes to, as you say, you know, savor when, oh, look, the ratings are down, in his case, all because of, of the Colin Kaepernick yeah. thing and the, and the anthem protest. Uh, he wanted to be into this league in the worst way. I mean, growing up in New York, I remember he had the New Jersey Generals and the USFL, and... His ultimate goal seemed to be to become an NFL owner. So how much of that is sort of sour grapes? Well,
0: look, I mean, I think a lot of like a lot of things that, that Donald Trump is on a hobby horse about. I mean, there, there is a history of personal grievance and him being left out of the club. And he's been trying to get into the NFL for, for four decades. I mean, whether through the USFL and a possible merger or buying teams. I mean, most recently he tried to buy the Buffalo Bills in 2014. Um, he didn't get it. The owners, as usually happens, didn't really give him the time of day. And so as a consolation prize, he gets to go to the White House and uh, heckle from the uh, bully pulpit. So, you know, if they'd only let him in 2014, they wouldn't have to worry about the White House and the Buffalo Bills would have to worry about him. But it's um, look, Donald Trump unintentionally became a big part of this book, too. I mean, as a political reporter, I happened to be around him a fair amount during the campaign before I was writing the book. But it was after I'd written about Brady and he loved name dropping Tom Brady because. They're from this rich celebrity, you know, beauty pageant judging, you know, people, I mean, this world that I could never begin to understand. I know you could, Doug, but the, um, the, so he would, he would talk nonstop about like Tom Brady and how the league is screwing him and how the league is terrible. And so, I mean, I had all these sort of outtakes from the political stories I was doing on him and I wound up uh, repurposing them for the book and, and actually they They actually made a lot of noise because he was then president. And it was like, wow, what's he doing? But so, yeah, he became a completely unwitting, both from his standpoint and my standpoint, character in this thing. And, you know, it's kind of they're they're sort of dueling reality shows. I mean, football and politics have become like these grand pageants of American life, Uh, American carnage, whatever you want to call it. And um, maybe there's just not room for the both of them. So Donald Trump you know, wants to be in the middle of that spectacle.
1: I'm quite comfortable at beauty pageants hanging out with rich people. So if there are any listening, mm-hmm. feel free to invite me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, as you say, the cognitive dissonance, the, the disconnect between— I mean, I, I love watching football. Yeah. And full disclosure, I am an NFL owner because I'm a not Green just Bay a Packers. Green Bay Packers— Fan, but a shareholder. And full
0: disclosure, you just used the joke that every Green Bay Packers owner, yes, but yes the owner, public, publicly traded or the public, publicly pu- owned, but publicly owned,
1: yeah, not Green traded, but owned. yes. Uh, I mean, members of my family, we each own one share. We have for for many, many years. Um, now, so, can
0: people use like? Do, are there major shareholders, or can you only own one? I've never understood
1: no. You that. can. Well, there's the original shares from a long time ago that mm-hmm. certain families and people have, essentially, a controlling interest okay. by owning a lot of those. But you can okay. no, you can own, buy as many as you want. But they're not worth very much so yeah, you can only sell them back to the team or leave them to a family members but so yes yeah, so i'm I'm an owner of the Green Bay Packers. I have okay. ownership meetings with my brothers I'll, all the time. I'll
0: call you mister. Yes. Uh, and part of the membership.
1: Called, yeah. we, we are the good guys in the NFL. But, you know, I played football as a kid. I've got two bad knees and a bad back as a result. And I didn't even play to a very high, serious level because I was, you know, yeah. small. But I still love watching the game, even though I know what it does to people's bodies. And we see the concussions. We see, I mean, brutal hits. And when it used mm-hmm. to be we, we'd we celebrate those hits, right? Now sure. people go, oh, yeah, and, and look special away. Special
0: NFL Films videos. On, exactly. Like, the Greatest hits, hits of the year, yeah.
1: Yeah. So what is it, you think, that keeps us watching? And even though we know what we're watching, we know intellectually this is painful, this is (laughs) ruining people's bodies and lives, but we watch it anyway.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think there's a leap of faith that we sort of take as members of tribes, like whether you're a Green Bay Packer tribes person or a Republican or a Democrat or a Trump person or a um, bird watcher. I don't know. I mean, we, we I mean, I, especially in this age of social media, we do sort of order ourselves in terms of like little sort of narrowly defined um, members of, of certain clubs and certain affiliations. Um, but I also think that like sports, and this goes to our earliest affections for, for sports, it invites a leap of faith. And that leap of faith certainly is true of fans. I mean, as a New England Patriots fan, I've had to, I I guess, sort of contort my brain around certain, you know, things that I haven't liked, but they win. So I root for them and I can't really help it. I think players themselves take a leap of faith. I think many of them know exactly what they're getting into. Um, And these are not just desperate players who are desperate to sort of, you know, help themselves economically. I mean, these are people who have fully, uh, you know, fully conscious of everything they're getting into, and yet they play. And, And you talk to some retired players who are crippled basically from the game and almost all of them will will say when you ask them was it worth it they would say yes I would do it again um, you know the glory of those eight years or ten years or whatever was just worth it and I'll never have that again so uh, again there's a lot going on it's complicated I mean I guess the, the danger for the league is that one day it'll just become too complicated and people will just throw their hands up and decide to watch basketball or soccer or whatever
1: Our guest is Mark Leibovich, Chief National Correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. His new book is Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. I'm Doug Sovereign. You're listening to In-Depth. The Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling during the anthem thing started here locally, and we didn't even know what it was, or no one even noticed for a couple of weeks until someone took a picture and asked him about it. And he was a guy, I mean, I've covered him a bit. He he was a guy not given to talking much with reporters, and suddenly he was the face of a cause. And look what's happened. Uh, he can't get a job in the NFL. Now he's got the Nike ad um, and it's become a movement and it's yeah. given President Trump, you know, a, a focal point for yeah. for his uh, complaints about the league. Uh, did anyone, and I don't know when you were talking to them, I guess that was evolving while you were doing these interviews. Did they see any of that coming? And then what's been their reaction? Not really. Reaction?
0: I mean, I think basically this was a contained issue. I mean, yes, it, it got some attention in 2016. Um, Trump talked about it a little bit. Um, on the campaign trail, but not much. And it was in the context of a a crazy campaign. And um, there there were a few people who followed suit in 2016. And a few people were rubbed the wrong way. But again, it never really really didn't really escalate. And then uh, he didn't get a job. And then and then what really changed things was was the president, then president, you know, now president Donald Trump in, I guess, September of last year, maybe October last year, just making this a huge thing. And All of a sudden, other players followed suit. They felt like their manhood was being challenged. You know, how dare this president tell us what to do? Owners didn't know what to do. And and we had, you know, a good part of last season that was given completely over to this and no one was talking about anything else. So uh, as usual, you know, Donald Trump sort of took a contained pool of of discord in, in the culture and he just sort of Exploded it into something much bigger, and that seems to be something he's trying to do uh, over and over again as you move closer to the midterm elections.
1: How much does it hurt the league though, when many of its fans are, you know, more probably aligned with Donald Trump's base than than the Democrat's base? I mean, yeah. football fans tend to be more conservative, more Republican, Absolutely. whiter. Yep, more all mail. true,
0: and, and that's backed up in all kinds of demographic surveys. It's probably the most Republican of sports. Uh, a lot of the most of the owners are Republicans. I mean, a lot of them gave to Donald Trump and in his inauguration and his campaign. So um, you're right, though. Traditionally, liberals have been suspe- more tended to be more suspicious of the NFL because of the violence, because of the kind of over the top patriotism, the kind of military ish culture around the game. But Donald Trump has also turned it into this culture war grenade that the white can feel that, that the white predominantly white conservative fan base um, of, of a lot of NFL teams can can feel like that like is something taken away from them they are affronted by players kneeling they believe that like when Donald Trump says that, that the NFL has sort of become like a, a soft game and that it's a metaphor for the softness of, of America that um, that's like a valid culture war issue too. It's like political correctness. It's permissive liberalism. So, I mean, Donald Trump has helped round out the profile of the NFL, always giving people something to hate, and it's a much more it's a much more uh, polarizing thing on the right now than it was before.
1: How typical and emblematic is it of the NFL that they didn't know, maybe still don't know how to handle this controversy? Oh, it's totally
0: typical. I mean, they have no idea how to handle this, and and I think what, what was interesting about this issue is that. My personal view is I thought they sort of handled it last year by doing nothing. Um, They sort of kicked around possible uh, remedies, possible solutions. Jerry Jones, Daniel Snyder of the Washington Redskins, Bob McNair of the Houston Texans, they all sort of wanted a you-must-stand policy. Donald Trump obviously wanted that. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, uh, resisted, and they didn't do anything. And by the time Trump kind of moved on to something else, uh, the league was sort of like, by the end of the year, it was just like another year. No one was really keeping track. I mean, there were great playoff games, great Super Bowl. Um, and then for some reason in May, uh, Roger Goodell and a group of owners said, oh, by the way, if you want to protest, stay in the locker room. And that just riled everything up again, including Trump. It angered the play- it angered the, the players. It angered a lot of the owners who weren't consulted. And now, they, the, so they subsequently reversed that a few weeks later. Now they don't know if, any clue what to do. And there, there was a report out of ESPN a couple of days ago that that's going to be put off for another season. So I don't know. No, but that that is very emblematic. They, they are great at turning mountains into molehills or just self-inflicting whatever, whatever mess they, they want on a given season.
1: Yeah, Roger Goodell. I mean, Pete Rozelle was a visionary in many ways as a commissioner. I, I, you know, again, being from New York, I remember Roger Goodell. He's a little older than I am, but his dad was a senator, one-term senator, Charles Goodell. Yeah. A feckless (laughs) senator appointee who had no chance of getting reelected or elected. And Roger Goodell was his, you know, preppy little boy. Right. Uh, I mean, I remember this kid. Uh, And um, now he's the commissioner of football. He kind of rose through the
0: ranks. Well, he he did. Well, first of all, Charles Goodell, I mean— he might have been feckless, but he took a very, very courageous stand on the Vietnam War. I mean, he was—he was Nixon's candidate. Uh, you know, he, he you know he Nelson Rockefeller appointed him to the Senate after Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, and Charles Goodell, you know, went from an otherwise unmemorable room to taking a pretty courageous, you know, especially for a Republican in the late '60s, stand against the war, and so he lost his job over that. I mean, he was not—he did not win re-election, and so Roger Goodell sort of saw up close. I mean, what it, it is to have someone you idolize uh, take an unpopular stand, you know, lose your job for it. Um, and yet, you know, I maybe be rewarded through history or something, but, but, but Roger Goodell, all he wanted to do growing up was be the commissioner of the NFL, which is bizarre because, you know, he was a Colts fan. You'd think that like he'd want to be Johnny Unitas or Raymond Barry or something, but no, he wanted to be the commissioner of football. And he got a job right out of basically right out of, um, college and, and got a job as an intern, um, uh, PR intern for the New York Jets, eventually went up in the league office, kicked around, and eventually was named commissioner in 2006. So, yeah, I guess he got his dream. And, um, you know, Roger Goodell is, to me, uh, obviously the most, you know, unpopular of sports commissioners we have. I mean, he couldn't get reelected if it was put to a fan vote. But he makes the most important, he, he makes the most important constituency happy, which are the 32 owners.
1: Well, that was my next question. Here's a guy who makes forty million dollars a year. We've written his career obituary several times, yet he's still commissioner. Is that simply because he's only really accountable to those owners, and he's doing their bidding?
0: Uh, simply because, yes, <laughs> that is exactly why. Um, I mean, look, if, if, you're the run- if you're the head of a trade association, which he effectively is, you got to keep the CEOs of the trades happy, and that's the model that he needs to follow. And the single most important thing he can do for these 32 members is make them billions and do- billions of dollars more than the billions they already have. And he's proven good at that. And I, I've said before, I mean, the NFL basically is a, is a drug, a drug Lord and the league, you know, it's, it's customers are just a country full of football junkies. So, um, the, the cause, uh, the, the, um, the supply and demand is is very much skewed to their advantage and that's backed up by TV ratings and revenues and, all the things that, that owners like to see.
1: Is there any particular anecdote or story you want to share that's in the book that, uh, you might want people to know to, to get them to buy the book? Yes. Well, there's one on every page. I mean, seriously,
0: (laughs) it is, I mean, despite all of the very serious existential things we're talking about and the fact that I'm a terrible, should never be trusted New England Patriots fan. And again, I apologize. Um, I, I do think it's a fun book. I mean, people like our, sitting someone on a plane next, sitting next to someone on a plane reading the book, which is always weird, but they were laughing repeatedly. So it's good. I want it to be fun and, and I try to you know not be overly serious about about things, even though it's an overly serious time. Um, there's one story which is, uh, I think it sort of distills how sort of the, the beauty and the nostalgia and the power and also the tragedy of football all into one. I was at a Hall of Fame induction in Canton, Ohio a couple of years ago and they wear all these sort of canary yellow jackets, gold jackets there now in the, the Hall of Famers and they'll come back to Canton or many of them do every summer um, for the induction ceremonies and they said the, the head of the Hall of Fame says welcome home so there are signs all over Canton saying welcome home to the gold jackets and it's very Americana and very schmaltzy and kind of cool. Tony Dorsett, the great running back for the Dallas Cowboys um, who you know you and I watched growing up and um, uh, and he was there and i recognized his very boyish still very boyish face and there's something about being around these great players that all sort of critical or all, all sort of respectful distance just sort of immediately melts away and i just ran right up, right up to him ra- ran right up to him and said tony i got to say i'll never forget watching that 99 yard run from scrimmage you had against minnesota on monday night football i watched it with my brother and we were 14 years old whatever it was and he immediately came back and he said, you know, there were only 10 men on the field for us then. Ron Springs, the, the, the fullback, was confused, and he stayed in the sidelines. And, and another thing, that record can only be tied. It can never be broken because, you know, of course, you can't start a play from the end zone. So 99 yards is a only tieable record. And he said he remembered exactly the, the, the date, the formation, um, who was where who threw the key block and what's amazing about that story is I've read enough about Tony Dorsett over the years to know that like many former players his life is ravaged his body is ravaged his mind is ravaged he can't remember anything about what he did ten years ago he's 10, ten ten minutes ago um, what he had for breakfast and you know he he's one of these people who just has sacrificed immensely for those memories and you um, you ask him you know would you do it again he said yes absolutely um, you have that all mingling very close, and I thought that was really powerful.
1: Yeah, actually, I vividly remember that play, too. They're backed up to the goal line. You think Correct. they're going yeah. nowhere. Boom, 99-yard run, and as you say, a it yeah. was a record at the time, and I don't I'm know that sure anyone's equal well, since. Or maybe not. I don't know. Is hmm.
0: it, maybe, maybe one of the uh, listeners knows. Yeah, know.
1: maybe it's been equal since, but as, as you yes. say, it can never be it broken. Never be and broken. And that is what you find. They'll reminisce. They can tell you every detail of a play from 30, 40 years ago, but—, but Recent, mm. I mean, that's part of what happens with the brain. Yeah, uh, b- but I mean, I have
0: a lot of stories like that. I mean, and again, I mean, some of them and some of them are just really touching. I mean, just and and all of them. There's again, there's this mingling of nostalgia uh, and tragedy at the same
1: time. Well, we're just about out of time, but I just want to ask you one very quickly. One other thing: How much of of the appeal of the league do you think may be generational? In that, you know, we are of a certain age where we grew up with this when football supplanted baseball as as yeah. national pastime. But today's kids and teens and twenties they have a different image of the league and they may not stick with
0: it. They do. And they're, and it seems like it's hard to generalize about an entire generation, but it does seem like they are bringing a much deeper level of critical thinking to their consumerism of the game. I've talked to a lot of many young people who not only are they not playing the game, but they just don't want to be bothered with it. And they're certainly not, you know, spend want to spend three hours on a Sunday afternoon or like six hours on a Sunday. I mean, if they're going to watch a game, you know, a lot of it's like for fantasy football reasons maybe they'll have like some special package or app that they can like, save all the time so yeah and I think the NFL is rightly worried about younger people and they're rightly worried about the NBA I think you talk people talk about soccer but I think the NBA you know, it's easy to say this here in the Bay Area but I also as a Celtics fan we're good now too so that's good but it's a very it, it's a it's a fast growth industry they've had a great few years um, you know, Roger Goodell is obsessed with Adam Silver. He hates the comparisons because it's always very negative for him. And it's a global sport. And it's, for some reason, done a lot of things right in the last few years. And I think the, NF- the NFL should be rightly threatened by that.
1: All right. Thanks so much for being with us. Mark Leibovich, the book is called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm Doug Sovereign, KCBS.
0: You've just heard KCBS In Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069 KCBS.